Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we look at spider silk science and NASA's hackathon. Have you ever wondered how a spider makes her web? Lachlan Watmore explains. My father was a very wise man. Once when I was a teenager, I cut my arm slightly and a few days later showed him the wound which had already closed and scabbed over. Dad, being a vet, commented on the wondrous mechanics of a wound healing itself, the rush of white blood cells to combat possible infection, the rapid establishment of a network of capillaries to keep the affected area well nourished, and finally the overlaying of collagen and other fibres to form scar tissue, which would ultimately fade as though the wound had never happened. Dad was an eloquent man and he expressed his wonder well enough for me to comment, that's really very clever. It sure is, said Dad. A shitload more clever than walking on water. Some time ago I saw a garden weaver spider building her web, a trick that has struck me as infinitely more clever than walking on water, although some species of spider can do that too. She had chosen a gap between a rubbish bin and the side of a building as the corridor through which her prospective prey would fly, and she constructed a frame of non-sticky thread to manoeuvre around her web and not get caught in the sticky silk she then laid over the top of it. The non-sticky frame was anchored at four points, two on the building and two on the bin, giving it a vaguely trapezoidal shape. In the middle, the sticky threads were laid in concentric circles to make a classic target-shaped web. Each circle was positioned quite precisely so that the distance between each thread was basically equal and therefore the prey had an equal chance of being caught in any part of it. Her diligence and patience in her task seemed to put the mad rushings and fickle desires of human beings to shame. She worked quite quickly like a skilled labourer who's done the job a million times before and could therefore do it in her sleep. However, if the spider was bored, it didn't show in her work. What struck me most of all was her dexterity and agility, spinning the silk using her back legs while moving around the frame and placing the thread precisely where it should go. Spiders aren't the only animals to spin silk, however the ability to spin silk is one definition of a spider. Spiders are arthropods. They belong to the massive animal phylum Arthropoda, as do insects, crustaceans and millipedes. Spiders are part of the subphylum Chelicerata, which includes horseshoe crabs, scorpions, pseudoscorpions, ticks and mites. Unlike other arthropoda, chelicerates don't have antennae and their bodies are divided into two main regions rather than the three of insects or the numerous regions of crustacea. Spider silk comes from special silk glands at the rear or posterior part of the animal. Silk is a scleroprotein made mainly of the amino acids glycine, alanine, serine and tyrosine. It's actually produced as a liquid and it hardens when the spider pulls it out of special structures on her rear end called spinnerets. You might think that the silk is reacting to the atmosphere and thus becomes hard, but that's not actually the case. Rather, it's the manipulation of it by the spider herself that causes the physical chemistry of the scleroprotein to change, causing a reorientation of its components and thus making the silk solid and elastic, rather than liquid. 
On the spider's rear end, each spinneret contains several different silk-producing pores called spigots, and one thread of silk typically contains several fibres, each supplied by a separate spigot. Thus, most spiders can make more than one kind of silk, and the variety of uses that silk is put to is impressive. Silk is not just used for web building. After all, not all species of spider catch prey in a web. The main function of silk in most spiders is to act as a drag line, which the spider leaves in its wake to act as a safety line should danger appear. We've all seen spiders hanging in midair suspended by their drag lines. I once saw a big hairy huntsman descend the entire length of a three-storey building to get away from the can of mortine in my hand. Silk is also used to line the nests of burrowing spiders such as the trapdoor and funnelweb spiders. All spiders are carnivores and some of the larger species are ambush predators who lie in wait for their prey to come along before pouncing on it, knocking it out with a toxic bite and then snacking on it at their leisure. Once again, silk is put to good use as a trip line. The spider waits in its burrow, the prey item blithely pulls on the trip line as it walks past, the spider senses the nearness of prey, says to herself, dinner time, and erupts out of her den to grab her meal. Mmm, tasty. However, in my humble opinion, the coolest way that spiders use silk is to build tiny paragliders and fly away. The juveniles of many species, known as spiderlings, oddly enough, emerge from another masterpiece of silk spinning, the egg case, after they hatch. The little spiders then climb to a relatively high point, such as the tip of a blade of grass or the end of a twig. They hang on to the tip or twig and extrude a strand of silk. When the wind is strong enough, they release their grip from the twig or blade and are carried away by the air currents. This process, called, oddly enough, ballooning, is an excellent way for a species to disperse itself over a wider area than would be covered if the animal walked. And it sure as hell looks like a lot more fun. Ballooning spiders have been found on ships hundreds of miles from land and have been collected by aircraft of altitudes of up to 10,000 feet. However, effective ballooning, by which I mean the eight-legged aviator actually lands alive, is limited to smaller distances because desiccation or the lack of food would limit the amount of time permitted to stay in the air. Now, I hope you've enjoyed getting caught up in spider silk. Remember, spiders are cool. I just wish I wasn't so afraid of the damn things. I have fought a grizzly bear, tracked a cobra to its lair, killed a crocodile who dared to cross my path. But the thing I really dread when I've just got out of bed is to find that there's a spider in the bath. I've no fear of wasps or bees, mosquitoes only tease. I rather like a cricket on the hearth. But my blood runs cold to meet In pyjamas and bare feet With a great big hairy spider in the bath I have faced a charging bull in Barcelona I have dragged a mountain lioness from her cup I've restored a mad gorilla to its owner But I don't dare face that tub What a frightful looking beast Half an inch across at least It would frighten even Superman or Garth There's contempt it can't disguise In the little beady eyes Of the spider sitting glowering in the bath It ignores 
my every lunch with the back brush and the sponge. I have bombed it with a present from Penarth. It just rolls into a ball, doesn't seem to mind at all, and simply goes on squatting in the bath. For hours we have been locked in endless struggle. I have lured it to the deep end by the drain. At last I think I've washed it down the plug-o. But here it comes a-crawling up the chain. Now it's time for me to shave, though my nerves will not behave. And there's bound to be a fearful aftermath. So before I cut my throat, I shall leave this final note. Driven to it by the spider in the bath. That was Lachlan Watmore telling us about spider silk. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Ed Pollitt attended NASA's International Space Apps Challenge in Canberra. The goal of the challenge is to leverage the enormous amount of data that NASA hold in order to create useful and meaningful applications that engage the public and further its goal of exploring space. Sean Heron is a technology strategist at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. He took time out of his busy schedule to talk to Ed. So uh, we kind of originated the Space Apps Challenge idea about a year and a half ago, um, actually in San Francisco at a hotel when we were uh, our team of about four people was gathered together and we were talking about um, kind of, you know, the hackathon movement uh, that we've seen kind of evolving in particular in the U.S. but also abroad and how, you know, there were definitely kind of two different areas in which companies and organizations were using hackathons. Uh, one was kind of as a public outreach mechanism, uh, but then also kind of as a mechanism for uh, looking for really good talent to bring into their own organization. And um, we had previously been involved in a movement called Rock Random Hacks of Kindness, uh, which was a hackathon focused on kind of developing solutions for social good in the developing world. Mm. Uh, so a lot of disaster recovery, disaster relief type applications that were helping, you know, the UN, USAID, the World Bank, uh, and a lot of the regions they were operating in. And, you know, we, we were involved in that for a while. And we kind of saw that that kind of stood alone and that it was a hackathon really meant not for the benefit of the organizers, but for the benefit of the people. And, you know, we got thinking that, you know, NASA has an incredible collection of data. We're collecting 27 terabytes per day of data about, you know, the Earth, the solar system, and the universe. Just a massive, massive, massive amount of information. And we thought, you know, a lot of that data is collected. It's made available online. It's publicly accessible. But it's not used that often by people outside of the scientific community. Hmm. And what if you gave, you know, this massive community of of hackers and developers who were out there wanting to be part of movements like this and kind of gave them the opportunity to work with that data, to work with subject matter experts in that data and, and have some time to, you know, use it to develop solutions that both were applicable for space exploration, but also here on Earth. Mm. Uh, so we kind of came up with the idea of the Space Ops Challenge and we had the first one uh, last April, um, April 19th and 20th. Uh, we had about 2000 participants in 25 cities around the world on all seven continents. And we saw about a hundred different solutions come out of that. Um, everything from you know taking uh, NASA exoplanet information and putting it into a nice API that you know web developers could query, hmm. uh, to people creating applications that helped farmers in rural South America determine the best crop to plant on their land based on the 
water type, the soil density, things like that from our uh, Earth observing mission. So just a huge gamut of, of projects that were created. Uh, and, you know, kind of as soon as the challenge ended last year, there was just a massive demand to do it again. Yeah. Uh, and so we started planning almost immediately after for Space Ops Challenge 2013. Uh, and this year we have over 9,000 participants in 83 cities around the world. So it's grown quite a bit, uh, but it's really exciting to see, you know, how it's progressed so far over the weekend. Right now we have about 600 active projects uh, being right. worked on. So just a massive, massive, massive kind of mass collaboration. Right. And it's just been fantastic to see. I understand that uh, we've broken a record with this hackathon. Yes. Yeah, so this is now the world's largest hackathon, uh, the, the known galaxy's largest hackathon, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I think the the previous kind of biggest hackathon we saw was around 6,000 people in 30 cities. Mm. Uh, and so this is, you know, uh, about 3,000 people more than that and uh, more than double the amount of locations. Terrific. Yeah. Uh, so far, have you heard or seen of something that's exciting? So I'm going to be partial to the challenge that I wrote. Uh, <laughs> which was, um, you know, I'm very interested in, in mapping uh, and, and kind of uh, geodata products. Mm. Um, and I think it's been incredible to see how there's this, been this open source community around OpenStreetMaps and Leaflet and OpenLayers and all these projects being created to kind of provide mapping solutions for the web. So people who, you know, want to embed maps on their website, who want to do visualizations of geodata. Um, and, you know, if you know anything about how mapping on computers works, is that the actual map is consisted of what they call tiles. And each tile is a unique image that's, you know, a certain latitude and longitude of the map. Mm. And normally you can find, you know, a few different sets of tiles. Norm most of them are kind of just map, you know, like uh, animated maps like you would see on Google Maps. But then there's also kind of satellite imagery on some of them. Uh, but there's not a lot of diversity in those types of map tiles. Mm. Um, one of the things that NASA has is, you know, about half of our missions aren't looking into space. They're looking back here on Earth. And they're all capturing incredible imagery. And so the Earth Tiles Challenge that I wrote was to see what if we could take some of this imagery, the Landsat imagery, the MODIS imagery, that's uh, recording a whole bunch of different information about the Earth's surface, everything uh, that are, you know, like temperature maps, heat maps, uh, topography maps, as well as this visible light images uh, from different periods of time. What if we could take those and make those available as tiles you could use uh, on web maps so that people could make really easy visualizations of geodata on top of uh, NASA as well as international partner imagery mm. um, on there without having to do a lot of work to actually understand the the raw data but rather just kind of plug in and say here's the link uh, to include all these tiles in my map and mm. so I'm kind of partial to that one just because I think it provides a real opportunity for people in the future uh, to create really amazing visualizations off of NASA's geodata. Terrific. Of course this weekend there's only 48 hours mm -hmm. well in total uh, so we're basically working on proof of concept right. ideas. From last year's Space Apps Challenge, how many of those ideas do you know actually came to fruition and are now in usage? Yeah, um, so, you know, I think, first of all, um, I think for the Space Apps Challenge, it's really meant to kind of be a, a Kickstarter to a mm. lot of these projects. Um, and so, you know, the idea is that, you know, a participant who comes can put as much or as little work into it as they want to. Some people are doing incredibly simple, small projects, and they can finish the entire entire thing in 48 hours. Yeah. Uh, last year, we had uh, a guy in London, I believe, who actually ended up doing six different projects during the hackathon, and he, I think he just stayed up the entire time and, <laughs> and worked and yeah. uh, made you know all these incredible projects. Um, so you know, it really can depend on how much work people want to put into it. But the idea behind the Space App Challenge is that it provides an opportunity to create a community of people who are passionate about this sort of thing. Mm. Uh, and so going forward, they can actually carry the work, you know, beyond the weekend to continue to work on it. And last year we saw a number of kind of open source projects come out of the Space Ops Challenge um, that have, you know, continued work. The uh, the project I was referring to earlier 
uh, that was working with the rural farmers in Latin America. Mm -hmm. uh, that's called um, uh, the Pineapple Project. Pineapple Project. And that has actually had um, dozens of participants over the past year continue to develop it. I think they're actually working on it again this weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's been really amazing to see, you know, in that particular project, just how much momentum has carried forward as part of it. And people have actually applied for grants and gotten grant funding to continue working on it. It's been turned into research papers. Uh, a lot of nonprofit organizations have expressed interest in funding it for their own work, things like that. So that has kind of developed into its own, you know, ecosystem of projects. Um, other projects that we had last year were actually adopted by NASA. Uh, and so NASA actually took some of the projects that we saw and, and brought it into our own uh, workflow as projects, you know, we're using officially at the agency. Right. Um, so it's, you know, it, it definitely depends. And obviously, you know, some projects, they, they exist during the weekend, they act as a really great proof of concept, but there's mm. not enough momentum to carry them forward. Mm. And that's okay, because with every type of, you know, event like this, you're going to have some projects uh, that get a lot of momentum and some that don't. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's really about capturing all of those ideas. So that going forward in the future, if someone wants to do something like that, we can point them and say, hey, there's a project that was worked on at Space Apps Challenge 2013. Uh, they maybe did, you know, a few lines of code, some found some data sets that would be useful. They weren't mm. able to finish it, but maybe this is a good starting base for your project in the future. I see. So nothing ever truly gets lost. Correct. If you could tell me a little bit about the Canberra base, this mm. is the, I understand, the head site for Australia. Correct. What is it that brought you particularly here? So I think there's a few reasons as to why I came up to Canberra. Mm. The biggest, I think, is, you know, our team is fairly small. We're only four people. And we wanted to make sure that we distributed ourselves around the globe, mm. um, both in terms of so that way we're distributed evenly on time zones. So that someone's always kind of awake during the events so that we can answer questions. If there's, you know, some sort of emergency, like the website goes down, you know, there's someone on, on call to try and get that fixed. But also because we think it's really important to get out to events, both large and small, mm. and be part of the community. So, I mean, last year I was at the events in Nairobi where they had around 200 participants. So just a massive, massive, massive event. Uh, and that was amazing to see because, you know, you're there in a in a city that doesn't have a particularly strong tech presence and um, faces a lot of challenges uh, that one would think that people would kind of, uh, kind of put space exploration aside for. Yeah. Um, but it was just amazing to see how much excitement and participation that we had um, just around our data and around using, you know, space data to help solve problems that are really relevant to people in Kenya. Uh, and so that was amazing to see, but it's been equally amazing to see how, you know, at a smaller event like we have in Canberra, uh, how, you know, you, you get people coming together and actually forming a really tight knit team in a small amount of time to create a project. Um, and so it's been great to, you know, be here as well as connect with people in Melbourne and Brisbane, Adelaide, um, just to kind of, you know, create, create, create a really kind of small, but tight knit community of people who are, who can kind of carry the site work forward into the future. Um, so, you know, definitely kind of being out there in the community is an important part of this. Um, I also, you know, we have worked with Naomi uh, Mathers, the Canberra organizer, as well as the Australia regional lead quite a bit in the past. Um, and we know that she has always put forth, you know, kind of really, really amazing events. And um, I think that being in Australia provides a unique opportunity because, you know, there is a fairly small but fairly active space community here of people who are interested in this and that who are very excited to be part of these types of events. So we think that you know, the Australia community here is really powerful and one that we want to help support and kind of, uh, you know, ensure is part of the Space Apps Challenge experience. Can you tell me a little bit about when you're back at NASA, where do you work? Uh, so I work at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. So, you know, in my role as a technology strategist, I primarily am responsible for uh, helping to ensure that NASA's data and open source code 
that's in the public realm is is used kind of by developers, by academics, uh, by designers, by all these different communities to kind of accelerate its value. You know, we think that NASA's data is an amazing resource. You know, petabytes upon petabytes upon petabytes of data. And a lot of it, you know, is used for its scientific purpose and then put online and stored somewhere. So it's mm. on a hard drive. And, you know, we think that that data has value, but that value isn't realized until it's used for something. You know, it's, it's like if you had an incredible library with, you know, millions of books on it, but the doors were never opened, what use does a library provide? You know, you have to have that data being used, being accessed, being analyzed to kind of have a continuing value carried forward. And so, you know, I view my role as kind of being, being someone who can help uh, connect people who are interested in working with NASA's data, but maybe don't know where to start looking, don't know what data they really need, don't understand how to, you know, decipher it, and, and helping helping those communities, you know, carry it forward. And so that's, you know, it's very multifaceted. Uh, part of it is kind of the policy side of things, ensuring that our release processes, um, our export, you know, processes, our, you know, intellectual property review is streamlined so that people inside the agency don't have massive barriers of entry to releasing their information. But also on the public side, uh, making sure that we're doing as much as we can to make that data available in open, accessible formats, uh, as well as doing kind of you know engagement around the data. So events like the Space Apps Challenge, where we actually kind of go out into the community, offer everything we have, and work to engage you know participants in, in using it. So I view it very much as both internally focused as well as externally focused, because in particular when you talk about you know NASA's data, it's so much of a, a huge community of people, both in terms of data generation and data usage. It, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, to, to realize more value out of the data um, that hasn't quite been tapped yet. And so we're trying to do more of that uh, and, and kind of you know spread the value of our research uh, around the world. Mm. Uh, just one final question. Yeah. As it exists at the moment, where can someone go? Yeah, so we have a number of resources available um, for people both during the Space Apps Challenge, but as well as you know in general, uh, if they want to work with NASA data. Uh, so I think the first, obviously, is spaceappschallenge.org. Uh, which has an incredible index of all the challenges that we've created. So the kind of challenge statements of different areas people should look at, you know, that might be a potential area to do some work in. And all of those challenges are very well documented. They have backup, you know, data and research materials behind them that you can link to and access, as well as, you know, a lot of good discussions and, and collaborations of people who have already tried to solve them. Uh, so that's a great resource. Um, in terms of kind of more hardcore resources, uh, we have data.nasa.gov which is NASA's data basically index. Um, mm. One of the things about NASA is we have so much data, we don't know the data that we have. Right. And so indexing and searching through and filtering that data is a massive challenge uh, because it's not like you can just say, you know, I want to query all data about the ocean because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of missions that have looked at the ocean. And, you know, it's, you know, what ocean are you, are you trying to find out information about? What information about the ocean do you want? What mission, you know, how old is the data? So there's so many different variables in there. It's really difficult to kind of create one system to mm. make all of it accessible. And so we have dozens upon dozens upon dozens of systems used to access data in different formats and ways. Uh, there's, you know, the planetary data system, which is looking at planetary data, the Earth observation system, which is looking at Earth science data, all these different systems. Um, and so for people coming into NASA, it was kind of a, a strange experience because you're like, I want to access data, but I don't know where to go find the data that I need. And so data.nasa.gov was created to basically be an index and a resource of all these different data systems. So you could type in, I want to find out information about, you know, planets in the solar system. And it will show you all the different kind of search engines and resources we have available to find out information about that subject. 
So that's a great resource if you're looking to, you know, just play around with some raw data, uh, download, you know, some XML files or data, play around with it, create something. Uh, we also have code.nasa.gov, which is an index of basically all of NASA's uh, open source software. Um, so a lot of that result, uh, resides on GitHub. Uh, so we have a GitHub account at github.com slash NASA, but that's not all of our code. We also have code in SourceForge as well as on our own servers. So code.nasa.gov provides an index of all of the open source software NASA has created and released to the public. Uh, we have dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, software that we've released and made available. Everything from trajectory uh, creation software. So if you're launching a satellite, you can use this piece of software to say, this is how fast and what angle you should launch it at, uh, to things like the, the drivers for the mission control displays uh, that are all open sourced. Incredible. Um, yeah, so there's an incredible resource of software you can kind of use if you're trying to do something with our data, there's a lot of software that you can use to kind of, you know, jumpstart your project with. Mm. Finally, we have open.nasa.gov and open NASA is basically our kind of community blog um, that we have open to any NASA employee. So anyone at the agency can actually write a blog um, on open NASA. And it's a great collection of communities and resources uh, for people who are kind of in this mindset of how they want to do business and kind of the collaborative participatory mindset of, of how our team is trying to put forth. And so there's an amazing collection of stories and case studies um, and other kind of resources available on that website for people who are interested, but maybe don't quite know where they want to go or what they want to do. Uh, there's a lot of really good examples and highlights of amazing work being done both inside NASA as well as in the greater community. Well, thanks very much, Sean. Thank uh, you. It's been a pleasure to meet you. You as well. That was Ed Pollitt speaking with Sean Heron of NASA. You can access NASA's data at data.nasa.gov, code.nasa.gov, open.nasa.gov, and the software is at github.com slash NASA. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please send us an email so we know you're listening and would like to hear more episodes. Contributing to the program this week were Lachlan Watmore and Ed Pollitt. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Oh, <laughs> you.